Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here uh, with you today. Uh, we have, for several weeks now, um, kind of been together on this pursuit at the beginning of 2021 to dive into this series together called Vital Christianity. Uh, what this series is doing is it's asking biblically a, a very specific and clear question. Uh, how do we as the body of Christ, as, as believers, uh, find beauty, transformation, and depth in our walk of faith? Uh, and what I, what I hope that you're seeing in this is that the Bible isn't silent on that matter. It has actually quite a bit to say about that. There are foundational aspects, uh, foundational patterns, foundational rhythms that believers are called into. And whether we see them and walk in them or we're blind to them and reject them uh, is going to have very real implications on the health of our faith and really the experience of our faith, the, the, the goodness of our faith. So we're digging into these things together very clearly because we want to have deep, meaningful, growing faiths in our Savior as we sneak up on today's topic, it, it's probably helpful to do this. I, I thought about this a little bit in uh, the office this week. I want to make sure to clarify something for us because language is, is really quite important. When asking how do we find things like life and beauty and depth in our faith, we are not leaning into any type of prosperity gospel. Uh, th there's no type of or, or shape of or form of how do we get more prosperity out of our, our faith, meaning there's tons of, of preachers and churches and sermons and groups of people that they, they tell you this foundational message, come to Jesus for a better dot, dot, dot. Uh, come to Jesus for a better life. Uh, come to Jesus for more happiness. Come to Jesus for wealth. Come to Jesus for community. Come to Jesus to fix your loneliness. Just in general, the undertone of, of many messages and many things floating out there right now are come to him so that things that you want to go well in your life will go well for you. Please hear me. That's not at all what this series is about. We're not asking, why do I come and what do I get for it? We're instead asking when we have come to Christ, when we are following him, then when we're doing that, uh, how must we live and operate and function inside of that faith that we have in order to find the full depth and breadth of the beauty available to us in our faith? If you're following me, we do not come to Jesus to improve the life that we have going on. We don't come to him to uh, enhance or polish or next level or upgrade our life or our thing. We don't come uh, for him to make better the thing that we've already built. Uh, and we don't come to him to fill some kind of gap that we've had or some longing that we have that's some sort of side personal desire. Because if we do that, if we come to Jesus to fix X, Y, or Z in our lives, things are going to go toxic and sideways really quickly for us or in a matter of time. 
the way some people have understood uh, Christianity or, or maybe embraced Christianity looks a lot like this. It's as if they think of Jesus as standing beside the road uh, with a sign like a hitchhiker saying, hey, uh, I, I will fix X, Y, or Z if you let me in, right? Standing there, you're doing your thing, you're driving by, and Jesus has this message. So you see the sign, and you're kind of looking at him, trying to figure out what's up with him, and you decide, you know, I want X, Y, or Z fixed for me. So you you pull over to the side of the road, and, and you open your passenger door, and you let the Savior ride shotgun, you allow him, hear the words, these are intentional, you allow Jesus in your vehicle, and you allow Jesus to go to your destination, and you allow Jesus to, to walk with you as you do life the way that you already want to. The reality of this perception or this way of embracing Jesus is this is you asking Jesus to follow you when Christianity is the fundamental opposite. Christianity is you drop your old life and follow Christ. He says, come and follow me. Uh, it, it shows an incredible amount of disrespect and irreverence. And, and honestly, friends, it, it shows a complete level of obliviousness to who Jesus or God the Father is when you invite him to not obstruct what you have going in any way, but invite him to be your genie in a bottle to fix the things that you want fixed. Fundamentally, on the other side, it's also going to disappoint you, I promise. I'll push further, um, hopefully to clarify what I mean. Redemption's Hill has been for over nine years. I haven't talked about our age in a while. Over nine years, we have been all in on gospel community. Uh, on living faith with others and not alone, with other believers, not being by yourself. And, and so that's involved some things. Uh, it's involved hospitality, people in and out of homes. It's, it's involved fellowship. It's involved meals with other believers. It's involved this, uh, this familial aspect of your faith. It's involved people caring for one another and, and bearing each other's burdens and walking next to each other. We've been all in on this now. Christianity is not just a community of people living life together. But we see in scripture that the body of Christ, the church, is commanded to walk out the gospel in the, in the mechanism of community. I hope we're tracking here. What has happened at times in our history so far, and in many other churches that I know of, is that a person will come into the church being desirous of community. Maybe they like the idea of, of people bonding together. Maybe it intrigues them. Maybe to some degree they want a, a, a tribe. They want a, a, a network. Maybe at a base level they're a little bit lonely or in, their, in this kind of transitional element of, of life. Maybe they feel vulnerable, but maybe they uh, need support. Maybe they just don't know who they are at this point. So that community seems like this grounding force. Uh, in, no matter which way it happens, that person enters the faith or comes to Jesus as a way to fill a need for community. If you're following, their reason for faith is to fix their community desire. Their reason for Jesus is Jesus becomes their mechanism. If I'd use hyperbole, Jesus is the necessary evil to get his people they invite Jesus into their life as a way to fulfill the thing that they've been longing for. Now, this is the starting place for some that becomes the foundation 
and it stays the core of all that they do. But the tricky part about that is, is we've seen that get embedded into people, and it's not just their entry point. It's their everything in the core of all things. It's the reason that they're here. They grow kind of fond of Jesus, again, in order to get other people. You may hear that and think, well, that sounds like mission. That sounds great. But we have to see the, the starting place or the foundation that we stay in our faith for is never about getting something. Right? Not, not, it's not about fulfilling some side desire that you have. The starting place of faith or the foundation of really walking into Christianity is our sin in a holy God. That's the foundation. It is what the Bible calls, and this is where we're at today, the foundation of faith is the fear of the Lord. It's seeing the, the majesty and the magnitude and the power of God and simultaneously realizing, and I've sinned against him. That's the starting place and foundation and the core of when we actually become believers. And if we miss that piece, if we minor on that piece, if we ignore that piece in order to major on something else, whether it be community or any other number of things, it will not work out well for us. If you've been around here for, for a period of time, what you know when this happens is, and I'm not trying to throw maker, haymakers, you've just seen this, I think. What normally happens in this situation in our church and in others is that person who walks in for the amenity of community will stay several years. And they really, really like the people. But then one day, community goes south and does what community does. It lets them down. Why? Because community is made up of sinners like me. And then they walk away. Angry, bitter, disillusioned. And here's the connection that they end up making. Okay, I came for the community and the community let me down. Ipso facto, Christianity doesn't work. I'm out. I want to be really careful here. Um, community is a wonderful way to attract unbelievers. It's a wonderful mode of mission. It just can't be the reason for faith or the core of faith or the substance of faith or you're going to be headed to disappointment and pain. A person can come in for community. That's kind of been our MO at certain times. But it can't be why they stay. That's a foundational issue. And if a foundation is made out of an amenity, that foundation will crack over time and bitterness will form. This is just a single example of coming to faith for something. There are tons of reasons that people come to faith outside of fear and the holiness of God. But we have to understand at the core level, the fear of God has to be foundationally a part of our faith. And, and if it isn't in any way, shape, or form, we may not actually have a faith. We're going to look at a text that's going to talk about this fear of the Lord. And I want to do this. I want to pray again real quick. And let's just be honest, family. Like saying things like the fear of the Lord does uneasy things in our hearts at times. It's not meant to though. Okay. So as we read this text, I hope that you hear that. Father, I pray even before we go into this that you help us. May we not form an unhealthy mentality of fear about you. Lord, may we see the beauty of who you are, but God, may we see 
the true beauty of a father over all things. Lord, would, would you form a healthy fear of you? A healthy understanding of who we are in comparison to you, but also who we get to be in connection with you. We pray that in your name, God. Amen. All right, Malachi 3, verses 13 through 18. Notice in a lot of these messages we've been reading from the Old Testament, and it'll be God speaking back and forth to his people. Uh, so it's going to start out with God speaking to his people, and there will be an accusation. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? God says, you have said it's in vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking uh, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. We're going to flip into verse, or verse 16 kind of goes to a different group of people there. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. As the text unfolds, there's an accusation from God against his people. It says, your words, your words have been pretty heavy and hard against me. You've grown in your displeasure and your aggravation with me personally. But, but the people retort back, like, how did we do that, right? Surely we haven't done that. And God responds, you've done it by saying to each other and other people that serving me is in vain. You've literally begun to ask your own heart and the people around you, what profit is it in keeping your charge? That's to say, like, what's the cut that we get out of this whole faith thing anyway? Where's our dividends? What do we get out of it? Where's our blessing? Where's our benefit? Where's our upside? What are we getting out of all of this faith stuff is what they're beginning to ask. And then we need to dig even deeper. They aren't just saying, what do we get out of this and questioning God? They're even beginning to ask deeper questions and not only why should we obey you, but why should we even be sorry when we don't obey you? Why should we repent? Notice there's this tension that your heart may have felt before mine has. Something in them is asking like, why should I hold the line anymore? I feel like I'm paddling upstream and it's hard and it's difficult and I'm beginning to wonder what I get out of it. So I'm just going, Whoa, why should I not quit? And then you see the reason why this frustration is growing. They're not only wondering what the benefit of their faith is, they're also noticing something else. The arrogant, those who sin like crazy, the evildoers, they don't act sorry. And they get everything they want. Life is great for them. They seem to be gaining the whole world. They don't love you. They don't obey you. They don't even respect you and things are going great. And I'm trying my hardest to obey you and I'm getting crushed. What's the value? 
They're looking at these people. They don't even pertain, they don't even pretend to hide their sin. They're blatantly evildoers. They even test you, and you don't do anything. Israel, in their hearts and with their mouth, are becoming jaded. They've been working hard to to follow God, and they're asking why. Why have we done this? Why do we try and follow God when it is difficult and when it is hard and when it does take work, especially when those guys who do not obey you, they get a whole lot more than we are seeming to be able to get right now, and they seem to be enjoying things a lot more. And they even mock you, and you let them skate. Can you see what's happening in the text? There's an assumption playing itself out here an assumption that they were coming to God to profit in some way in the present moment. I've come to you for this. The assumption is that their life, because of their obedience, would be more blessed than unbelievers, that things would generally go better for them, right? What's, what's the metaphor we use? That the, the trajectory of their life would be you know, up and to the right consistently. It wouldn't be up and down. It would be better than those evil people, if they just towed the line and did what God wanted them to regularly, things generally would go better for them, they believed. At the foundation of their faith, what emerged is this, a present expectation to thrive. And when that thriving didn't play out in the way that they wished it would, they're going, I wonder if I should pull the plug. Should I bounce? I mean, why? It's difficult. Why should I stay? This pattern for the people isn't a new one, and you may find that it's actually a little bit familiar to your own heart at some point as well. You look around and you see maybe the evilest people around crushing it, getting all the things that they seem to want, and at a deep heart level, you're going, God, what in the world? What's up with that? Maybe for you, even a person comes to mind because you see their obedience and their way of life and, and their th- sin, and, and you don't understand why, why they're doing all the things that you're working so hard not to do, and yet they have what you so deeply want. And it feels unfair because you've towed the line and followed God, and they hadn't. And yet... This is what Malachi is dealing with. Friends, this is what we deal with. Now, on one side, there's a group who expected things from God. And they were frustrated because it felt like God had under-delivered for them. What was going on is they, they viewed their faith as a commercial trade. I will give you sacrifices, and you better pay me back in blessings. When did this start, Cain and Abel? I'll give you a tainted sacrifice, and, and, and you should always be happy with me. But on the other side was this other group of people, the one that text says fears the Lord. They didn't feel slighted. They weren't accusing God of not holding up his end of the deal. They instead started to stir each other up over what was true instead of focus on their bitterness and anger. Like sidebar point. To question why God does something is, is not a lack of fear of the Lord. It's normal. Right? We all struggle going, God, why did you do that? This is not what this other people were doing. They're angry saying, you sold me out. 
and you're not good and you're not just. I want, I want to put that in there because there are times we're going to look around and go, I don't know why you did that, God. That just happens. This people who feared the Lord, they're not accusing God of being an absent father or an unaware deity over his creation. The text says that there's even a book of remembrance. It's only used in this wording once in the Bible, but this idea is placed over the Old Testament many times and even in the New, it's placed a couple times. I believe that there's this book or scroll written and inside of it are the names of all those who are faithful and fear God and they are his treasure. And in that are a, na- a list of names of people that God will never let go. And one day it will become clear who those people are, who are his, and who are those who've rejected and mocked him. Those that didn't fear the Lord believed somehow that God wasn't aware or wasn't just. And those who fear the Lord knew that not one word in public and in private, not one action, not one thought would go unnoticed by God. They were reminding themselves when, when the world was going crazy, they're reminding themselves in this time that even when evil seems to be winning, one day God will set all things right and he will not be mocked. And those who are evil won't at that time seem so blessed. What are they reminding themselves of here? A topic that's not super popular judgment. The return of a warrior king. One day Jesus will come back and reign as king and and Lord and judgment will come. And, And here's the thing that makes all of our hearts maybe uneasy at times. Each person will be looked at when he returns and the questions will be as follows. Have you sinned against a holy God? And all of us will answer, yes. The following question, and who's paying for that sin? For the righteous, those who fear God and follow Jesus, like in a courtroom, Jesus will come in and say, Father, I've paid their debt in full. With my blood, they are clean. While those who seem to be getting away with murder, Jesus will stand silent about their sin. There's no sacrifice there. And they will be judged and evil will be dealt with. The second group that remembered, they had their hearts refreshed out of fear of the Lord, knowing God sees all things, he knows all things, and he'll deal with all things. There is a line in a commentary by a a gentleman named Matthew Harmon that he he just says it better than I, so I'd rather read him uh, about this, but... He says this, um, this point is crucial when we are wrestling with our hearts in the midst of difficult surroundings. We, We can agree we've been in difficult surroundings as of late. We are often tempted to read God's attitude towards us from our circumstances. If life is going well, we think it means that God loves us, while if we are in the pit of trial and difficulty, it means that God doesn't see us or care about us. 
In the passage, the God-fearers could not read God's favor from their circumstance. They were still stuck in the same mess, the same visible problems as before. What they needed to do was to read their circumstances in light of God's favor. God's declared that he uh, would keep them, that they were his treasure, that they belonged to him, and that he would never let them go. They're going, I know stuff is crazy now. That does not dictate our blessing from God eternally or his love for us. There are tons of verses all over the Bible about the fear of the Lord, this group of people that refreshed each other. Again, we're called those who feared the Lord. Verses all over about how fear of the Lord is a foundational part of our faith and being God's people. In Genesis, it says that uh, the fear of the Lord is what spared Abraham from from killing his son Isaac. In the book of Job, Job is described as a God-fearing man and a faithful man. The, the verse that we've probably heard the most often is in Proverbs saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, and Peter says uh, in his New Testament letter, he says basically this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Man, we could have used that one in 2020. But that might leave us asking, okay, but what does the fear of the Lord mean? I get it. It's expected. It's what we're called into. How do you quantify that? What does it look like? Well, the whole book of Malachi actually gives us a really good look into that. We're going to look at Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8. This is, again, God speaking. It says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept? Will he show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The text is from God to his people. And it shows us from God's perspective to fear the Lord is to honor him. There is no fear of the Lord without honor. God shows them just a real basic example. A son honors the father, right? A servant is fearful of his master. But if, I, if you're calling me father, though, but where's my honor? And you're calling me master, where's my fear? The people were eager to call God certain names. Remember, that's that going through the motions that we've been wrestling with every single week. They would open their mouths and revere and respect and God and say all these big things, but their hearts modeled absolutely nothing that came out of their mouth. Friends, to have a healthy fear of the Lord is not to be in this cowering terror all the time, but it is to have this awe that surrounds him and honors him. So I see S. Lewis chose a lion in the Chronicles of Narnia because there's this thing, in it, isn't there, that's like drawn to lions because they're beautiful and they're majestic and they're intriguing and you'd love to see one, but if you were in the wild, you wouldn't want to get that close to one. 
You wouldn't walk up all willy-nilly and like pat a lion on the head because you know it has incredible power, way more than you do. And if you come up to it in an incorrect way, you're going to die. This awe of you're not like me. The text in Malachi here and the other one that we'll read in many places in in the uh, Old Testament love to do this. They love to teach you a trait by showing you parallels and juxtapositions, right? Or opposites. He says in the, the text that to honor me and fear me is a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord. But it says you do the opposite. You despise me and you disrespect me. The opposite of honor is disrespect. The people ask, well, how do we do that? And God says, you do it by treating me as less than the other people around you. You offer me polluted sacrifices. You bring me the worst stuff that you have. The leftovers, your crumbs, you bring me your trash. treats me like I'm nothing. Would you do that to your governor, he says? Would he accept it? Would he show you favor? The answer is rhetorical. We're supposed to understand the creator, God, adopts children into his family. He is holy and separate and different than we are. And in our world, if you can't tell me and I can be all things, we begin to forget that in the hierarchy of creator creation, we're not even. He's holy and he's different. And that's really good news though. Malachi 2, 4 through 8. There's two traits of fearing the Lord in this one. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Here here it is. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. That's speech. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many uh, from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. And you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. It's, under, it's probably helpful to understand in the Old Testament and before the priests as a position kind of represented the people of God. Now in the, in the New Testament, because of what Jesus has done, he is the high priest and we as the people represent. So this letter to the priest, you're like, well, that, I'm not a priest. It wasn't written to me. We're, we are the we are the, the, the people of God that represent this. It's as if this letter is written to us. We find two traits of fearing the Lord in the text and their opposites as well. The first, the fear of the Lord is to love what is true. You see that truth and instruction was was in his life and nothing false was out of his, his mouth. 
To fear the Lord is to love what is true. That may sound basic, but this is really big now, and it's not basic, and it's not easy. The fear of the Lord allows him to dictate what is true. And we love what is true because we trust him as holy and honor his name. Friends, we now live in, we, we get this, right? Nobody wants the, 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 the machine of anger out in the world to turn on you for saying the wrong thing. We live in what many declare is a post-truth society where everyone's very careful about what they say. Our culture denies the presence of absolute truth largely most of the time, and it's replaced uh, absolute truth or what is true with this idea of this truthiness or have changed absolute truth to what is true to me. What is true to you and I is an abomination to God. And it's a complete lack of fear in honor of him. Again, let's work this way. Let's work this out. God is the source of truth. We honor him. He's holy. He's above us. He sets what is true. He created. We're in his creation. He sets the stage for how his creation works. To reject his truth is to reject him and say, you're a crummy creator. To remold his truth is to mock God by asserting, you're not smart enough to do this right. I'll change this and make it right. Truth is his, and as those who are his and revere his name, we accept his truth even when it's hard. The text says the opposite of the fear of the Lord in loving truth is to cause people to stumble. What does that mean? It's to embrace the world of truthiness. It's to embrace the eradication of truth. It's to embrace your truth and your truth and your truth. This is not telling us to pick up picket signs, but it's saying when you go along with and you support and you recreate and you add into this world that, that molds God's truth all of the time, you are causing people to stumble and you're censoring God's truth. When you champion other people's truths over God's, biblically, friends, even as hard as it is in our moment right now, it is a lack of fear of the Lord. The final trait today is the one that's the most obvious to us, I think. To fear the Lord is to walk in his ways. It's obedience. The text says those who fear the Lord embrace what is true from God and then they walk in peace and uprightness, which is they walk in God's ways that he has given them. The opposite, the juxtaposition is still in the text as well. To not fear God is to turn aside from his ways, to ignore them, to, to choose to flat out reject them or, or, or disregard or change or, or flip what his ways are so that they fit into your ways. This is, again, a blatant disrespect of God and his authority because it does not honor him. It takes truth away from him, and it says, I would do better than you which we've talked about a lot of this through this series, that's another apple and tree moment. It's, it's taking the apple going, I could do better without you on my own way, with my own truth, on my own path, because I want to honor myself. This is a lack of fear of the Lord. 
as we begin to wind down and only have a couple more weeks in this series, we've shown how vital Christianity is, week one, wholehearted Christianity. It is faith that bears fruit by abiding in and connecting with Jesus regularly because he is our source. It is faith that practices true repentance and not penance. Vital Christianity is one that practices resolute obedience. And then today, vital Christianity is Christianity that fears the Lord. And though we've said that the fear of the Lord can be understood through honoring and revering and respecting the Lord appropriately. And it is to love what is true and accept truth from him. And it's to walk in his ways and to obey him as you live. The next question probably from our mind is this. Okay, but how do I get better at that? How do I muster up? This is the stumbling block, right? How do I muster up fear? Do I, do I, do I cower? How do I embrace all of these things more in my life? Notice a great summation word for the fear of the Lord, a a synonym. To fear the Lord is humility. The question isn't, are you petrified of God? The question isn't, are you scared enough or do you do respect enough? The question right now is, is your heart humble or proud before him? That's what determines us if we fear the Lord or not. Is there a heart of humility or a heart of pride? Because humility before God is knowing that it is his name that deserves honor, not mine. Humility is knowing that he has the authority as creator to decide what is true. Humility is saying, not my way, God, but yours. Does that sound familiar? You know what's best. Humility is not demanding God do what you deserve. Remember that example? What does it profit me? Humility is not saying, God, you better give me more or I'm out. Humility is saying, God, I can't believe what you've already given me. Humility is the key to a proper posture of fearing the Lord. The final question, the one that probably will hit the most good soil in our heart is, why does it matter? And how does the fear of the Lord lead to a vital Christianity? Like, how are we connecting those dots? First Peter 5 puts it this way, and remember, we are connecting fear of the Lord with humility. First Peter 5 says, clothe yourself, all of you, this is to the church, to the people of God, with humility. And then it goes on to say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember, we're asking, how do we find life and depth and beauty? In those verses, there's two kinds of people 
Those who are humble, that is those who fear the Lord, and then those who are proud. That is literally the only distinction between the people in 1 Peter 5, and yet it says that God has a very different disposition or demeanor or action towards them. It says to some, God is present. He is active. He is intentional in opposing some. And then God is present and active and intentional with pouring grace on others. Let the words sit, even as uncomfortable as they may be. God actively opposes pride in the heart. But God actively moves towards those who are humble with more grace. A surefire way to find a deeper, more beautiful faith in life is to no matter if things are going good or bad for you out there in circumstances around your life, to feel an unending fountain of God's grace poured on your weary soul. You find vital Christianity there. To feel wave after wave after wave of grace crash into you from God on high as a way to revitalize and stir you from a deep place. A vital faith, a beautiful faith is one that feels God overflowing his grace and mercy into your life. Church, I believe that that's what our hearts long for. And then on the opposite side of that, guys, I think with tears, some of us would say, but that... hasn't been what I felt for a long, long time. So, so here's the landing. If you're frustrated with God for something, if you think he's sold you out, if you think he's under-delivered, if you think he hasn't held up to his end of the deal, if your heart has been way too flippant with him and all of a sudden you realize I have not been reverent to a holy God. I have not been honoring him with my mouth or my actions and and I've tried to redefine truth according to really what I want instead of what he said is true or if you've been actively following your own way instead of God. The play for you and I when we get there and we will get there at times is not to work that off by pridefully fixing it by ourself. See, there's a Savior who was perfectly humble, humble to the point of death, who feared God, who honored God, who trusted God the Father and obeyed him to the point of death, and he is eager and awaiting to pour grace upon you through his perfection and for your imperfection. If you realize a lack of fear of the Lord, the play is to ask Jesus for help in your humility. I won't belabor the point with 15 more questions, and I think we know if we haven't feared the Lord. But if you realize that your heart's posture hasn't been respectful in fear, that, that, that you have not revered his name, and that, and, and that these things have just been things that you haven't done, then ask the Savior through the Holy Spirit to help you. Don't ignore it. Just say th- don't just say thank you for the cross. Say, Holy Spirit, will you help me? Will you, like David prayed, give me a new heart because I can't fix my pride. I need you to help my humility. Help change my posture, God. 
give me a new heart that rightly views you and, and rightly frames up who I am, not in the sense of crushed shame, but sees that you are bigger than I am and that is good news and that receives a steady flow of grace. The beauty of all of this vital faith stuff that we have gone through the last couple weeks is Jesus is there and you're not alone. If your faith has seemed dormant, if it's been stagnant, Jesus is willing and able to help. The, the, the beauty that we have to see is in your weakness, he is made strong. And when you are weak and far away, it's when you can humbly say, come help me, please. I need you. I pray that our hearts would do that. I pray that we would have a healthier view of what the fear of the Lord is together. Here, you can come back up. We'll take communion as we close in worship. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he has betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. In our moments that we need help with humility, guys, those words, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even our moments of pride, In our moments where we irreverently question God, there's still a sacrifice. I pray that you would see that, that you wouldn't just be thankful and be content to run the way that you have, but you would ask God, will you help me? Help me in humility to walk appropriately with you. Guys, this is our hope that we would build a healthy fear of the Lord and that our hearts would feel the beauty of that.